Listen to these words. This is a Christmas song that doesn't sound very Christmassy. And listen, listen to the development of this. Many of you will recognize the, the song and some of you may not. But listen, listen to the progression of where we're going with this Christmas song. It goes this way. I heard the bells on Christmas Day their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. How's that for a joyful, peaceful Christmas carol? That's titled, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. That was written on Christmas Day, 1863, by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And you say Christmas Day, I mean, you get the imagery, right? The, the bells ringing and the thought of Christmas Day and the good news and the, the angels in Luke's Gospel announcing Jesus' arrival with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And, and there Longfellow wonders, what in the world has happened? The wheels have come off this announcement from Luke. Now in Longfellow's day, 1863, this is the midst of the Civil War. and That's the canons he refers to. Longfellow had lost his wife to an an accidental fire. She had died. His grown son had snuck out of the house against his will to join the Union Army to go fight in the Civil War. And so here it is Christmas Day and he is not feeling the peace, love, and joy. And that's where this song was written from. Now if we take a look in our world today, we could feel the same way Longfellow did then. You know, we were a little surprised. We had some of you got to meet, if you hadn't met them before, some of our girls. Our girls flew back, a couple to Southern California. We found out that the Muslim terrorists that murdered 14 people in Riverside were manufacturing pipe bombs two blocks from our daughter's house and her family's. That brings terrorism a little closer to home. That's gone on, of course, just before Christmas. A couple years ago, just before Christmas, it was the Sandy Hook massacre at a grade school right before Christmas. Same thing going on today. You know unless your head's in the sand, guys, that Christians throughout the Middle East today being chased out of their historic homes, being executed, beheaded, pushed off mountains, you name it, because they're Christians. And by the way, when we think of Muslim terrorism, it is a big deal going on today. It's spiritually informed. This isn't just mere human activity going on. You know, it's not just Christians. If you're not Muslim enough or if you're not the right kind of Muslim in the Middle East, your life is forfeit as well. If you go to parts of Africa today, I hope I remember to use these images that I spent so long 
preparing for you. Sometimes I forget what I'm doing. Uh, if you go to Africa today, much of the same thing going on. And again, uh, much of it, Muslim terrorism against Christians, churches firebombed, pastors executed, probably also where women of almost any age kidnapped and made basically slaves to the masters that take them captive. So with Longfellow, we might say, where is the goodwill? You know, in his day, the Civil War, loss of family, loss of life. But for many of us facing all kinds of challenges too, much less the greater challenges in the world around us, why is peace so hard to find? Why is goodwill such a rare scarcity? Now, this may sound simplistic, and I don't mean it to, but in one way or another, all the lack of peace, all the terror, all the turmoil, all the elements of sin and death we experience on the earth today, and have, frankly, throughout all of time, is because you and I and all of humanity was born to a guy named Adam. We were born to someone named Adam and his wife Eve. We all come from that one line. And friends, that's our problem. And this is not naysaying or talking down Adam. I have expectation that in the imagery of redemption God put on Adam and Eve, God slayed animals to clothe them with animal skins. I hope to see our first forebear and mother, Adam and Eve, in heaven. That's my, my desire. And I think maybe that's implied in God clothing them in those animal skins. But friends, if you remember the creation account, when God made Adam and Eve and everything else in that creation, everything was good. And it was very good. And it said that when God made Adam, it was in God's own image and likeness. So that before the fall, everything was good. But what happens after the fall? When God told Adam, you'll die if you eat, you'll die if you don't believe me and obey me, Adam had no concept, I'm sure, of what would be included in death. When God tells him you'll die, what does that look like? But if you think about it, every sin, every act of violence and terrorism, every evil thought you and I have had, envy, wickedness, greed, whatever you want to say, friends, it all stems from that first sin. And when Adam starts having children, the language of reproduction changes. So Adam bore the image and likeness of God. But the text is clear in Genesis 5, verse 3. It says this, When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Now this is the deal. We reproduce what we are. And Adam reproduced children after his own fallen, marred image. And we cannot get past our point of origin. If we are sons and daughters of Adam, we are born in his likeness, and we share therefore his fallen nature. And the reason we lack peace and joy and the fruits of the Spirit on the earth today is because Adam is our father. Because we share his fallen likeness. And because the sin and death he told Adam, God told Adam would come, came. And it's still rolling through history today. And this is the deal. Jesus came to the earth, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Life, and He came in the Incarnation to start a new race of men, of mankind, of men 
and women. If we want to see peace on earth and joy and all the things that we tend to connect to Christmas and the Incarnation, it means we have to have a new point of origin. All Adam can give us is Adam's life. It's fallen and it's marred. But if Christ becomes the source of our life, then suddenly we have a new point of origin. We have a new spiritual life. And just as Adam gives us what he had to give, his own sinful fallen life, if we get a life from Christ, we become someone and something we weren't before. And suddenly, the fruits of the Spirit, peace and love and joy become ours, and they're reproduced in the world because of that. The world hasn't changed since Longfellow's day, has it? In fact, I would say it's corrupting worse and worse, worse which is what the Scriptures talk about. But we're, we're in the series, Behold Your God. And we've said all along, we want to see God. And as we see Him, we want to be drawn more fully into the worship of Him, into valuing Him. And as we do, we realize that we're transformed more fully into His image and likeness. That's the process of who and what we worship. And so in these last three messages in the series, we're looking at God specifically in the incarnation in Christ Himself. We're going to look through a few passages this morning, a few concepts. I'll belabor the first point a little bit, and uh, we'll wind down from there. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15. You can't get past the thought, the concept of origin, determining who and what you are and where you're going. And Paul speaks to this in spades in 1 Corinthians 15. You can get your Bible out if you want to. We'll spend just a few minutes here. In 1 Corinthians 15... Uh, this is a long passage in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. And he's talking to them about death and resurrection. And, and the Corinthians were struggling with this concept and what does that look like? And in the midst of that, Paul's tying the themes of death and resurrection to who is your father? Who is your point of origin? From who does your life come? So listen to this. I'm starting at verse 21. Here he's talking about the realities of death and resurrection. And he says this, As by a man, and this man is Adam in the Garden of Eden, as by a man, the first Adam, came death. Death came from Adam, and all death in the world that's ever been, every element, every aspect of it has come from Adam. By a man, this is the second man, the last Adam, Jesus, has come the resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In Adam, what do we get? We get sin and death. What do we get in Christ? We get life. If you skip down in that same chapter to verse 45, Paul references Genesis 2.7 when he says, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being or a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 47 The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. Do you remember in Genesis 3, after the fall, God says to Adam, you've come from the dust, and to the dust you shall return in death. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. If I'm only Adam's heir, I'm a man of death, I'm a man of the earth of dust, and my life is going to exemplify sin and death. But as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are 
of heaven. Those who've been reborn through faith in Jesus. Verse 49 is the clincher. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In our humanity, in our common humanity, we all bear the image of Adam. It cannot be otherwise. We come from him. Straight line from Adam. We come from him. We bear his image. But this is the great thing. If we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ, we have a new point of origin. We have a new source of spiritual life. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Ultimately, Paul says, our humanity will share the same glory and resurrection that Jesus has now. We don't see that now. But ultimately, that's the redeemed's end because Christ is our life, will fully bear His image. Gloriously, ultimately, in heaven with Him. This morning, the key thought, though, that we want to have in mind is, because through rebirth, through faith in Jesus, we have a new nature. Our sins are forgiven, but we've, we're not just forgiven. We've become someone and something we weren't before. We now have a new life and a new nature. And because that's true, just as Adam was our life before, all we can get is what he gave us, Christ is our life now as a Christian, and so we can expect to see His image reproduced in us. So if we want to know what does it look like for me, for you, to be transformed into the image of God, all we have to do is look at Christ in the Gospels or the explanation of Christ in the Epistles. So what did God look like? God looks like Jesus. And if Jesus is the source of my new life through faith, my transformation should be into His likeness. So if we get a sense of what Jesus looked like on the earth, we get a sense of what our transformation should look like as well. Now, there's lots of ways we could look at what is Jesus like? And therefore, I I hold up an image, if you will, of Jesus, and I say that's what I should be looking towards. That's the transformation my life should take me towards. Uh, Galatians 5 would be a great place to do that, but we don't have time this morning. It lists the fruits of the Spirit, nine fruits of the Spirit that are typical of the life of Christ in us. And there we're talking about things like love, and joy, and the peace Longfellow looked for, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And it's contrasted in Galatians 5 with the things we get from our original father, Adam. They're contrasted, but we know that. We're going to take a shorter list this morning. I hope you have a study sheet in your bulletin. I just want to look at three ways in which the life of Jesus is demonstrated in the Gospels And that life we can look at to say, this is what I aspire to. As I see Jesus in these ways, that's the transformation I should expect in my own life. Just as the corruption of the sinful nature of Adam is at work in the world today, Jesus' life, His perfect life, the fruits of His Spirit should be at work in our lives today as those reborn through faith. So, We looked at this element a couple of weeks ago, but it bears repeating today. And the first point you've got is Jesus' humility and love. The context for this a couple weeks ago was Isaiah 52 and 53. We said Jesus was the suffering servant that Isaiah predicted. And we tied that to Philippians 2, that New Testament passage in which Paul says this is the kind of humiliation Jesus was willing to walk into knowingly No humiliation too deep. 
in order to glorify His Father and to save us. But the context of the Philippians passage was Paul saying, you should have the same mind, the same willingness to humble yourselves that Jesus displayed in His willing humiliation. That Jesus' humiliation became our model. If I want to know what does God's life in me, what does transformation in my life look like, one of them is simply humility. Now this morning I just want to run down a litmus test. If we want to say, do I see the humility of Christ in me? Here's a list that I found helpful in the past and others have as well. And just, just click through this in your mind. Again, this is on your study sheet. Am I characterized by complaining? Am I characterized by complaining? Kids especially, this might be a good one for you. Am I characterized by complaining? What does complaining mean? Complaining means I'm proud, not humble. That I think things should be the way I want them, not the way someone else wants them. Do I lack an attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude? These are all stated in the negative, but the, the opposite, the positive, is what we're aspiring to, right? This helps us put our finger on those areas in which we're not seeing the fruits of the Spirit, the life of Christ, in our transformation. An attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude. Are we an angry person? Are we a person characterized by anger? Anger is born of pride, not humility. Things aren't the way I wanted them. Do we focus regularly on our lack of abilities or achievements and lament? In other words, I should be doing more. I should be more important. I should get more. Are we a perfectionist? Uh, God, uh, guys, living, aspiring to a high level is a good thing if it's to honor God, but for most of us, the truth is perfectionism is simply the expression, the expression of pride. And if you're a high-performing person, it's easy to be inflated by pride, not humility. Are we a perfectionist? Do we talk too much or talk over others? What I have to say is more important than what you have to say. Do we need to be in control? Does it have to be done my way? Am I consumed with what others think about me? Again, some people mistakenly think that I think so poorly of myself that I must be humble. But generally you'll find that those folks are thinking about themselves all the time, which means they're still the center of the universe. It's the opposite of humility. Are we notably upset by criticism? Are we sarcastic towards others? They're not important enough to be taken seriously. Are we slow to ask forgiveness? I'm excusing myself, it wasn't that big a deal. Do we justify our lack of time with God in the Scriptures and in prayers? This one, forgive me, is hilarious to me. Can you imagine standing in heaven and telling God you've got more important things than Him? But think about this. So every day I get up and get about my business, and maybe I give God a token prayer on the fly. What am I really saying? Everything I do is more important than God. Right? And yet, God is the center and the sum of all things. This is crazy, isn't it? This is crazy. Do we envy others? I want what God has given others and not me. How do we treat waiters and waitresses? How do we treat those who fill the servant roles in our culture today? Or how do we simply treat those who can be of no use to us? You know, when you look at Jesus in the Gospel, John 13 is the passage I'm thinking of and it's reflected in the image here. 
Jesus very intentionally washed those apostles' feet the night of the Last Supper because He was taking the form of the lowest servant in any household, the one that would wash others' feet. And He said, I'm the, I'm the Master, I'm the Rabbi, I'm the Teacher, and if I'm willing to wash your feet, you should wash each other's feet. You should be willing to humble yourselves. This is why we've said repeatedly, there's no job too menial. There's no job beneath you and me as Christ's followers. Jesus displayed humility. And to the degree that we have His life in us, and we're walking in that, we will see His humility in us as well. Uh, What's the benefit of humility? If you say, uh, why is humility so important? There's a number of things that could be said, but the one I want to focus on here is just that Humility enables us to love God and to love others. And that's exactly what you see in Jesus' case. I'm not going to go over these passages in John's Gospel, but you have them on your study sheet there. Jesus humbled Himself so that He could show love to His Father. And you read these passages and He says over and over and over again, I'm doing these things so that I can glorify My Father. My Father has first place in my life and I want to glorify Him Why do I want to glorify my Father? Because I love my Father. Jesus demonstrated Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, what He would later say is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Well, that's exactly what you see Him do. When we read John 3.16, God loved the world. He sent His only begotten Son. Jesus said yes to God the Father to the incarnation and to the crucifixion, all its suffering, and to the resurrection because He loved His Father and wanted to glorify Him. Jesus demonstrated what love of God is like and it requires on our part humility. But also that humility enables Jesus to love you and I as well. John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no man than this that he would lay his life down for his friend. And Jesus says to those apostles that same night, He washed their feet. You're my friends. And I'm going to lay my life down for you. Jesus was also the demonstration of what He called the second great commandment. This is from Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you think through some of the Gospel stories, Jesus displayed miracles because they validated His claims to be Messiah. But he also did a bunch of miracles just because he cared about people, because he loved people, because he saw them in their point of need. He raised a widow's only son. This image is from the account, I think it's Luke 7. Jesus is walking into a city, the Prince of Life, and there's a funeral procession coming out of the gate of the city at the same time. And the imagery is stark in contrast, isn't it? The Prince of Life meets death at the city gate. And this is this widow's only son, her only hope of future provision. And Jesus stops them and He raises that son back to life. Now, it's a resurrection and it proved who He was, but can you imagine what it meant for that widow that Jesus reached out and touched her with this miracle by giving her son back because He loved her, because He cared. Or if you think of feeding the 5,000, Do you remember the context? The the apostles, the disciples are saying, Lord, there's a lot of people and they need to eat. You better send them away. And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, I have compassion on them. They've been with me all day. 
I care about them. I want to feed them. And so he fed the 5,000 out of love and compassion. When you read Jesus dis, uh, uh, reproving and rebuking his disciples in the Gospels, that's out of love too. He's lovingly reproving them. You remember when their minds are, are off? And, and routinely, do you remember what that came back to, by the way? Who was first among them? Will I be the first? Will I be on your right hand? Will I be on your left hand? And Jesus reproves them because they're missing the mark. That's not what He came to do. And ultimately, of course, simply dying on the cross. The ultimate act of love, both for the Father and for us as well. So, beholding God in Jesus in His transformation means intentionally humbling ourselves so that we can love God our Father and love others as Jesus left us a model for doing. This may be my hobby horse, the next one, and if you, if you feel that, my apologies, sort of, but it's a big deal. Uh, if you say, what did Jesus, as a man on the earth, um, remember Jesus is both fully God, very God of very gods, but also fully man. Absolutely a human like us, without sin. So when you look at the life of Jesus demonstrated in the Gospel, one of the things you find is, even though He's God the Son and second person of the Trinity, being fully man, He displays a life of dependence, drawing His life from the Father in prayer and in God's Word. So on your study sheet, you have a, a list of what this looked like. In Matthew 14.23, after Jesus fed those 5,000, do you remember what He did? He went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Matthew 26 and Mark 6, after the Last Supper and before his arrest, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray. Mark 1.35, Jesus got up early before everyone else to pray. Luke 5.16, Jesus often slipped away into the wilderness by himself to pray. Luke 6.2, Jesus spent all night in prayer before choosing the twelve disciples. He prayed before that decision was made. You get the picture. He's God the Son, and yet He's a man. And as a man, He draws near to God early and late and sometimes all night and before decisions, He draws near to God in prayer. Prayer characterized His life. The other thing he did was, in his temptation, this is from Luke 4, this isn't spelled out, but a lot is inferred. In Luke 2.52, thinking of Jesus as a baby born in Bethlehem, who then is a boy who grows up, just like other boys, he had to learn the Bible as a boy. He had to, in fact, Luke 2.52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. He grew in the development of his mind as well as the development of his physical body. And this is displayed in Luke 4 when Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you remember how Jesus responds to each temptation? His response is he quotes by memory God's Word. Now we say Jesus is the Word of God. That's true. Isn't it ironic? Jesus gave the Word of God, right? In Jesus' day, that would have been what we call the Old Testament. Jesus gave that. But as a boy and then a young man growing up, Jesus read His Bible. Jesus meditated on the Scriptures. Jesus memorized God's Word 
as a man on the earth like us. In other words, what you have is a picture here of Jesus living what we would call the spiritual disciplines. Do you think if the perfect man on earth, if the last Adam felt the need to draw near to God the Father in prayer and felt the need to memorize and learn the truth of God's Word, the Scriptures, do you think maybe transformation into His likeness might require the same thing for us today? How much transformation do you think we get if we aren't characterized by time with God in the Word and in prayer? You know, my morning... I'm not sure I would have ever said I was a morning person before I was a Christian, but mornings are my favorite time of the day. Because we get up early and uh, I have a great time with the Lord every morning. So I get my coffee. I usually open a window. I'm in a comfortable place. And I just get to hang out with the Lord. And I pray and I give Him the concerns I've got for the day. And I try to be intentional about listening to Him and being in the Word and praying back the Scriptures that I'm in. Guys, that's my best time of day. I couldn't imagine living without it. Sometimes when we think we're doing well, we, we make a, a new um, commitment. We're going to spend some time with the Lord in prayer. And we say, we're going to give you 15 minutes, Lord, or 20 minutes. And I'm all for that if we're starting out. But sometimes people will say, uh, I feel rushed. And my answer is, well, spend more time. It's not that what you're doing isn't a good thing. It's that you need more time to do it because it's that important. Jesus drew His life from His Father. And part of simply the process of transformation for us is to do that same thing. The more you're drawing near to the Father in prayer and in the Word, the more transformation you'll see and the more of Christ's life you'll see in yourself. It simply cannot be otherwise. The last point I want to bring out, I wonder if I've... Yeah, sorry, I've skipped again. There's Jesus and His temptation. The last point I want to bring out is this. When you read the Gospel accounts, though you will read certainly in uh, Jesus' time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops like blood, His soul in agony and torment as He considers being cut off by the Father on the cross, becoming the sin-bearer for the sins of the world, the agony physically and soul or spiritually for Him, And he says, Father, if it can be, would you remove this cup from me? But not my will, but yours. So Jesus there absolutely demonstrating what real grief, what real trepidation looks like for us, absolutely, on one hand. And yet what you find generally, and at the end of that, is this confident hope and joy that was part and parcel of Jesus' life on the earth a confident hope and joy, and it's born out of Hebrews 12.2, the truth of Hebrews 12.2. If Jesus, think of this, with the weight of the world in His crucifixion coming upon Him, the Scripture still says that His life was buoyed by hope and confident joy. And it says that in Hebrews 12.2, that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, He despised the shame, He seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus had an absolute expectation of what the fruit of his suffering would bring, of his future exaltation in God's presence, and of having his bride, going back to the creation account, Eve was the perfect complement to Adam. And when Jesus comes through his death and resurrection, Jesus wins for himself the church, his bride. Jesus knows I share eternal glory with my Father in a way I didn't as, as merely, if I can say it that way, the second person of the Trinity. Now I'm also the, the epitome of manhood elevated and I have my perfect complement, the church, as the fruits of my labors in death and resurrection. So he was buoyed by a hope, a confidence, and a joy that we should have as well. Guys, if we're Christians, I mean, think of the things we know. We know who we belong to. You know, on, on a good day or a bad day, for me to simply know I'm Christ, whatever happens to me, I know who I belong to, I know where I'm going. I know my sins are forgiven. I know I'll never stand in judgment for them, says John 5.24. I know my sins are forgiven. I know if I live life short or long, I get to spend eternity with the source of all peace, Hard to find today. The source of all peace and joy and life forever and forever and forever. I know things now. In fact, the verse from the announcements, be faithful to death and I'll give you the crown of life. There are Christians today, they are willing to die, be faithful to death, knowing that God has a greater reward. And friends, Scripture says that when we stand in the halls of eternity, the sufferings, whatever they were on planet earth, however bad they seem, will seem as nothing compared to the glory that will be ours in that day. See, if we can lift our eyes up to Jesus on the cross who for the hope set before Him, for the joy set before Him endured, we can experience that same uplifting, strengthening hope and joy ourselves that's part of the life of christ in us it is his peace it is his joy it is a confident in his promises gk chesterton said of hope hope is the power of being cheerful in circumstances which we know to be desperate that's good the circumstances you and i live in on the earth today they're desperate and they're more desperate for others around the world but if you're a Christian, you can live with confident hope and joy. John Greenleaf Whittier said it this way poetically, I have not seen, I may not see, my hopes for man take form in fact. But God will give the victory in due time. In that faith I act. And he who sees the future sure, the baffling present may endure. That's true for a Christian. The the future is sure i can have peace and joy now guys as you think about christ this is the thing by the way all of these things are true for a christian and only for a christian no matter how nice a person we are no matter how courteous no matter how handsome no matter how long we live if adam is the sole source of our life guys we die separated from god and christ forever Without hope, without God, Paul says in Ephesians. We need a new birth. And that's what Jesus said in John 3. You must be born again. And new birth is not a labor on our part. 
Jesus did all the work for us. We simply receive the gift of God, eternal life, in Jesus. Jesus becomes, through faith, the head of our new life. He's the one whom we derive our life from. And then we become His image bearers again on the earth. It's a great transformation. He lived out His life in humility so He could love others. That's our transformation. He lived life of fellowship with the Father. Prayer and the Word. That's our means of transformation. He lived in the image of God with this hope and confident joy based on the certainty of God's promises. Listen to how Longfellow ended his poem. You know, that last verse we read was one of despair, wasn't it? There's no peace on earth, I said. Hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But that's not how his poem ended. That's not how the song ends. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does He sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now friends, ultimately, as Christians, we wait for the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. And He's going to bring a righteous rule here. And He is then going to set up an eternal kingdom in which peace and righteousness reign. Until then, Christians remain His image bearers on the earth today. And we should be bringing peace on earth, goodwill to men. That transforming grace that should be at work in us to the lives of those around us. Father, thanks that Jesus is everything and all that we need. And Lord, would You, would you enable us to see Him more clearly, to love Him as we ought, and in that loving embrace, Lord, to full, more fully share His image in our transformation, especially this Christmas season. In His name, Amen.